Psalm 134 is our text for today. Psalm 134. Other books of the Bible are historical, doctrinal, or prophetic. But the book of Psalms is all of these. It describes the history of the church. It foretells the passion and resurrection of Christ. And it declares the duty of the Christian. It is a jewel. It is a jewel consisting of the gold of doctrine, the pearl of comfort, and the gem of prayer. Those were the words of my best friend, George Swinnick, who's been dead some 400 years now. And he sums it up so wonderfully, doesn't he? The book of Psalms, a jewel consisting of the gold of doctrine, the pearl of comfort, and the gem of prayer. And for the past four months, more or less, give a week or two, we have traveled through the Psalms of Ascent, and we have seen all of that confirmed. As we have journeyed through the Psalms of Ascent, we have seen the gold of doctrine, We have seen the pearl of comfort, and we have seen the gem of prayer. And as we've traveled uh, through these psalms, I have asked you at least twice to keep four things in mind, four things in mind as we study these psalms, as we look at these 15 psalms. Number one, the first was this, we interpret the psalms how? We interpret them in the light of Christ. And so the Lord Jesus declared, Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so at Christ's first coming, the kingdom of God was inaugurated. It was established. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. At his second coming, God's kingdom will be consummated. And between these two comings of Jesus Christ, uh, he reigns as mediator. And so we are in the midst of his mediatorial kingdom. Everything in the Old Testament prepares for this. Everything in the Old Testament points to this. And so when we go back, for example, to the book of Psalms, when we go back, in our case, to the Psalms of Ascent, we interpret them in the light of Christ. And so I pray, I trust, that these Psalms have revealed more of Christ and his kingdom to you. Number two, the second thing I've asked you to keep in mind is this. We use the Psalms to live biblically. We use the Psalms to live biblically. According to John Calvin, in the Psalms, every emotion is represented as in a mirror. And so whether it's pleasant or not, you know what you're going to see when you peer in the mirror in the morning, your reflection. When we read the book of Psalms, we are looking into a mirror. We see our reflection. That is the reflection of our souls, our emotions. 
The book of Psalms captures and expresses every conceivable human emotion. Therefore, they guide us through the ups and downs of life. And as they do, they inform our thoughts. Our thinking needs to be informed, doesn't it? They shape our experiences, they regulate our feelings, and they change, alter our perspectives. They help us to live in the reality of what we know to be true. And so I trust these psalms have comforted and challenged you. Number three is this. We adopt the psalms as our prayers. We don't know how to pray, and we don't know what to pray for. The psalms are a wonderful prayer book. We take possession of them, and when we do, they express God-glorifying desires, God-magnifying emotions, God-honoring thoughts, and God-exalting requests. So they direct us heavenward in our prayers. They orient our prayers biblically, equipping us to pray in faith. And so I trust these psalms have transformed your prayers. Number four is this, the fourth thing I've asked you to keep in mind. We follow the Psalms to God. The essence, I need to be reminded of this regularly. The essence of Christianity is not enthusiastic feelings or grandiose experiences. The essence of Christianity is disciplined perseverance. We are running a race. And it is a grueling race. To run well, we need to stay focused. If we look down, we are in trouble. If we look back, we are in trouble. The Psalms help us to focus on God. To put it another way, they help us to walk by faith. And so I trust these Psalms have pointed you heavenward. And today, as I mentioned, we arrive at the end. The end of our study of these 15 Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, And we conclude with Psalm 134. We've memorized it. We recited it moments ago. It was our call to worship. We sang it. And now let me read it, declare it for us publicly. Psalm 134, come. Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Now we know that these psalms, this this group of psalms, uh, the Israelites would sing them as they traveled, as they journeyed annually to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate their feasts, their annual festivals. It's likely, we don't know this for certain, but it's likely they sang this particular psalm upon arrival and again upon departure. Because what you actually have in this psalm is a group of people calling out to the Levites in the temple and then the Levites responding. And so it seems that this was their custom, their their habit Their tradition that as they would sing these psalms, as they went up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts of Jehovah, that upon their arrival, they would call out, they would sing this psalm. Uh, The first two verses directed the people to the Levites, and then the Levites responding in the third verse to the people. 
And so what you actually have then, what we have when we look at this psalm and break it down very simply, in the first two verses we have a call to worship. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. The people calling out to the Levites, the servants of the Lord in the house of the Lord, to worship, to bless God. And then you seem to have this response in the third verse. The Levites to the people. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So very simple. Verses 1 and 2, a call to worship. Verse 3, a benediction. Now incidentally, just by way of side note, that should shed some light, some light, just a little light, on why we do what we do on a Sunday morning. We gather here, uh, we sit down, we, we listen to a few announcements. That's necessary, painful for some of us, but necessary. We listen to a few announcements. And then we try to memorize a portion of Scripture together. We change it each month. And then one of the elders leads us in a pastoral prayer on behalf of our people. All of that, they are expressions to one degree or another of worship. But really then, our corporate worship begins when? Chris leads us with a call to worship, almost always out of the book of Psalms. And today we use Psalm 134. It is our call to worship. And after that call to worship, what do we do? We sing together, praise the Lord. We recite Scripture together this morning out of the book of Revelation. And then once we've done that, what happens? Chris leads us in prayer again. Why? What is he doing? He is seeking, he is asking the Lord's blessing upon the culmination of our worship, which is actually right now. He is seeking the Lord's blessing upon what? The proclamation of his word. I stand up, I preach, I proclaim, thus saith the Lord. When I finish preaching, what do I always do? I I pray, asking what? God's blessing, not upon the proclamation of the word, but upon the application of his word. Then we sing, and then we end with what? The benediction. And you didn't think we were a liturgical church. That is our liturgy. We don't make that up. We find it where? In God's word. We find these essential elements characterizing The people of God, when they gather to worship God. It's not written in stone, but they are elements that are there. And so we derive them from Scripture. We incorporate them into our worship. And here's a case in point. In Psalm 134, we see this emphasis on what? A call, an invitation to worship. And then what? A benediction. The call to worship is beautiful. I mean, the psalm is beautiful. But this call to worship... It is marvelous for us to get our minds around it. I mean, it's like a sparkling diamond. We want to view it from various angles. We can ask six questions of it. So think, think in terms of a conversation. You're having a conversation with these two verses, and we're asking six questions. The first question when we look at this call to worship is this. Who? Who? Well, the call right there at the outset of the verse, come. In the New American Standard Version, King James Version, behold. It's better. It's a better translation. Behold, 
Come, it's okay. Behold, to whom is this invitation directed? Who? All you servants of the Lord. In the context, undoubtedly, the Levites. This side of the cross, what are we in the Lord Jesus Christ? We sang it this morning. We are a priesthood. He has made us priests. We are a royal priesthood. And we have this wonderful invitation to behold. It is a call to worship. That having been born again by the Holy Spirit, we worship Him in spirit and truth. An unbeliever cannot do this. I'm not saying that I'm not picking a fight with anybody. And I'm not looking to mix it up with anybody. But if you aren't a believer, right here, this very day, gathered with us, please understand, you aren't worshiping. You need to hear that. You're here, and you can sing the songs, and you can recite the scripture, and hear the prayers, and listen to me preach, but you actually aren't worshiping. It is only the priesthood that worships. It is only those who are born again of the Spirit of God who truly worship in spirit and truth. That's my big beef, incidentally, with the seeker-sensitive movement. That's my big issue with so many churches today who bend over backwards to make the unbeliever feel comfortable in worship. If the unbeliever feels comfortable in worship, I dare say we aren't worshiping. Well, I've really got some noses out of joint now. We, the people of God, worship. It is an invitation to the priesthood to gather to worship. We welcome unbelievers, certainly. And we seek, we seek to, to love unbelievers, definitely. And we pray that as unbelievers gather with us, they catch something of our joy in the Lord, and more importantly, the cause of that joy, which is the glory of the Lord, and the Spirit draws them into that priesthood by the Holy Spirit, whereby they are born again. But let's, let's let's be very clear, though, and let's be very concise, precise in exactly what is happening in a worship service. It is the priests, the servants of the Lord, the people of God alone, who are engaged in Worship. The invitation is extended to them. That's the answer to the first question, who? Second question is this, what? Behold, come. Here's the answer to what? Bless the Lord. Seems strange to us because when we hear that word bless, we think immediately in terms of what? Gifts. You bless someone, you give them something. That's not really the essence of what it means to bless. To bless means to speak well of. And so we bless God, how? By speaking well of Him. We bless God by speaking of His goodness. We bless God by celebrating His goodness. We bless God by declaring what? He is good. More than that. We bless God by declaring He is our greatest treasure. We bless God by declaring corporately together what? that there is nothing in this world that compares to him, that he excels everything in our lives in regards to worth. That is what it means to bless God. That is the what. Question number three is this, when? Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night. What's going on there? You go back, you read the book of Exodus, the book of Deuteronomy, even into Chronicles, interestingly enough. 
you discover that the Levites, they worshipped at two appointed times during the day, at the morning sacrifice and at the evening sacrifice. I dare say, I grew up in this kind of tradition, I dare say many of us did, Uh, you grew up in a church where they gathered in the morning to worship and they gathered in the evening to worship. And maybe you wonder, well, why do we do that? Why do that? It goes back to a verse like this. It goes back to the history of God's people in the Old Testament. That was when they considered that this was the appointed time, morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice. And so here in view is the evening sacrifice when the servants of the Lord, the Levites, were gathered to worship. That is the when. It is directed at a specific time. Question number four is this. Where? Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. And so they were called to gather in a particular place. Question number five is this. How? Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Verse 2. Lift up your hands. How? And so there are appropriate postures of worship. Yes, sitting, standing, kneeling, hands raised. Slouching isn't one of them, nor is sleeping. We are to be engaged. The mind is to be engaged. We worship God in truth. And the heart is to be engaged. We worship God in in spirit. And question number six is this. Why? We've answered the first five questions. Who, what, when, where, how, why? These verses don't answer that question for us. But the answer to that question, why, is the testimony of Scripture uh, in its entirety. When we think of, of God, when we think of our God, and we think of um, who He is, who he reveals himself to be in Scripture. The recurring theme is this. Uh, He is a God who excels in perfection. A God is perfect. A God delights in his perfections. Therefore, when it comes to his act of creating, and we must understand this. We must grapple with it, however difficult it might be to fit it into our worldview, our perception of things. When it God, comes to God's end in creating, He only has one purpose. If He's perfect, He can only have one purpose. His reason in creating cannot be found outside of Himself because He is perfect and absolutely satisfied with Himself. Therefore, his purpose in creating must be what? Himself. His purpose in creating is what? It is to reveal those excellencies in which he delights. His excellencies, however, can only be revealed and understood by their effects. If God never acted or did anything, it would be impossible to know his excellencies. His excellencies can only be known through his works. And so God creates, and in creating, he has only one purpose. It is to reveal his 
excellencies. That is it. And in that act of creation, Paul confirms this in Romans chapter 1. We see God's greatness. We see his power. We see his wisdom. We see his goodness. But the revelation isn't complete. There are excellencies beside those. And so we have what? We have God's plan of redemption. Understand this. It it, it is paradigm shifting. That in the plan of redemption, plan of salvation... God's ultimate purpose is not your salvation. God's ultimate purpose is not my salvation. God's purpose is himself. It has to be, because he's perfect. And so even in the plan of salvation, his purpose, his ultimate end, is the revelation of his excellencies. And this is confirmed in Romans chapter 9. And in redemption, in salvation, we see the revelation of his righteousness. We behold his holiness. We see his faithfulness. We see his loving kindness. And his purpose is to call then a people to himself, this royal priesthood that will bask in the radiance of his excellencies and ascribe to him that glory which he alone is due by finding their delight and their satisfaction in his glory and in his glory alone. You ever looked at it like that? I I thought it was all about me. I thought it was all about my happiness. I thought it was all about where I was going to spend eternity. I thought it was about how I was going to solve all my problems. I thought it was about how I was going to see grandpa and grandma again in in glory. I thought it was about this. I thought it was about that. This is paradigm shifting, friend. Please understand this. It's got nothing to do with us. It is not about us. God has but one glorious end in view. He can only have one end in view because he is perfect and he needs nothing outside of himself. We add nothing to God. He does not benefit in the least iota from us. His purpose is himself and the revelation of his excellencies. In creation and in redemption, the fullness of his glory revealed. That means all of history is understood in the light of that purpose. That means the history of the church, God's people, is understood in the light of that purpose. It means your life, down to the most trivial matter and detail, is to be understood in the light of that ultimate purpose. Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord, Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Why? Because it is why he has saved you. He has saved us and he has imparted to us the spirit of God so that we behold who he is, his glory, his excellencies in creation and in redemption. And as a result, we bless him. That is the call to worship. And then there is the benediction in verse 3, the Levites in likelihood responding to the people. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Two very simple questions. First is this, who blesses us? 
takes us to the second part of verse 3. He who made heaven and earth. That's who blesses us. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are. God isn't merely strong, but he is mighty in strength. He isn't merely powerful. He is great in power. And God blesses because he alone is able to bless. He is a boundless God. Second question is this, how does God bless us? That takes us back to the first half of verse 3. May the Lord bless you, here's how, from Zion. We have the fullness of God's revelation. If we think Zion is a physical temple on a physical hill in a physical land, we're sorely mistaken. Zion is Christ. And each and every blessing comes to us but from Christ. Zion is Christ and his people. Hear the words of Hebrews 12, 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, meaning what? That all the promises and privileges of Zion are ours in Christ. You put that benediction, those two parts together. Who blesses us? Well, the maker of heaven and earth, boundless in power and might and strength. How does he bless us? He blesses us from Zion, that is, through his Son, the Lord Jesus. The conclusion, when you put it all together, is this. The boundless God blesses us in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the essence of this benediction. The boundless God blesses us in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That statement thought has occupied my attention just about this past week in its entirety. That articulated that earlier in the week, maybe Tuesday, Wednesday, and I've been thinking on it and pouring over it. And this relationship in this psalm between the call to worship, blessing God, and the benediction, God blessing us. And this relationship between us blessing God, God blessing us, this boundless God blessing us in his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I have come up with this past week. Eliphaz in Job 22 asks, can a man be profitable to God? We probably would like to think we are. We're delusional if we think we are. Can a man be profitable to God? No. Do I have any effect upon God? No. Does God need me? Does God gain anything from me? No. God is a perfect being, meaning he is incapable of increase or decrease. Nothing can be added to him. Nothing can be subtracted from him. He does not require anything outside of himself. Nor does he benefit from anything outside of himself. My effect upon God is that of a snowball hurled at the blazing sun. That is my effect, my earth-shattering impact upon God. It is like throwing, hurling a snowball at the blazing sun. What am I to God? He is like a sphere whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. 
He isn't shut in or shut out of any space. He isn't far from me, yet he is far above and beyond me. He hangs the earth on nothing, says Job. He binds up the waters in the thick clouds. He covers the face of the full moon. He inscribes the boundary between light and darkness. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. There is no proportion between this limitless God and my limited mind. Between this boundless God and my bound intellect. Between this infinite God and my finite understanding. I lose all patience when I begin to say, or I hear someone say, well, I think God is like this. Excuse the phrase if it offends you. We are mental midgets, friends. And the sooner we realize that, the better. The finite mind cannot grasp the infinite. The bound intellect has no room for a boundless God. A limited understanding cannot grasp a limitless God. Those who hear him most clearly hear but a faint whisper. Those who see him most fully see but a small glimmer. Those who understand most about him understand nothing in comparison to what there is to be known of him. He does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. His way is through the sea. His path is through the great waters. Yet his footprints are unseen. He isn't merely wise. He is wisdom. He isn't merely powerful. He is power. He isn't merely good. He is goodness. He isn't merely holy. He is holiness. He isn't merely just. He is justice. God's manifold attributes can no more be separated from him than he can be separated from himself. This is our God. They are his essence. They are all one in him. His justice is his mercy, and his mercy is his justice. His wisdom is his power, and his power is his wisdom. His knowledge is his patience, and his patience is his knowledge. His wrath is his goodness, and his goodness is his wrath. God's manifold attributes are distinguished in their objects and effects, but they are all one in him. God isn't merely mighty. He is almighty. He has never encountered difficulty let alone impossibility. Have you ever thought of that? He has never even encountered difficulty, let alone impossibility. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God knows what was, what is, what will be, what can be, and what can't be. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth. He knows all things at once. By one pure, simple, eternal act of his understanding, he knows all things perfectly, immediately, and distinctly at every moment. Sheol lies open before the Lord. 
how much more the hearts of the children of men. And so this boundless God peers into my heart, weighing its desires, its motives, its impulses, its inclinations. And he sees my heart riddled with self-love. This sin is an affront to him. A transgression of his law, a rejection, outright rejection of his rule, a desecration of his goodness, and a violation of his glory. This boundless God has power to avenge himself. With a mere look, he can cast me into hell. With a mere look, he can cast me into hell. Amazingly. This boundless God draws near in the incarnation. The Son of God comes so close as to clothe himself with our humanity, body and soul. He comes so close as to experience life in a fallen world. He comes so close as to bear my sin and shame. He comes so close as to taste death for me. I carry, says Martin Luther, I carry the nails of Calvary in my pocket. I am the reason for his bloody agony upon Calvary's cross. And yet he draws close. God's abundant mercy blots out my multitude of transgressions. His mercy defies apprehension. Your steadfast love is great above the heavens. And his mercy evokes admiration. How precious is your steadfast love. That is the blessing of the boundless God in his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, boundless God, blesses us when he gives himself for us in Christ and to us. By the Holy Spirit. Oh, may the Lord bless you from Zion. We look at that and we think, yeah, I'm thinking of a shiny new car. Or I'm thinking of better health. Or I'm thinking of peace at home. Or I'm thinking of a long life. None of that is in view. The blessing is God himself. The blessing is this boundless God as given for us in his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to us by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. When we grasp that, we jump, we leap back into the first two verses The call to worship. Come bless the Lord. There we have our motivation. Now we feel the impetus to do this. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. That is life transforming. Let me sum it up for us in five statements. The first is this. Those who bless God like this. Those who bless God like this, are those who know. I don't mean merely intellectually. They are those who know it experientially, God's blessing. God is good. Not because I'm wealthy or healthy. God is good. 
Not because I'm having a particularly good day. Oh, I have enough money to send the kids to college. God is good. Guess what? God is good even if I don't have enough money to send the kids to college. The diagnosis has come back and is good. No surgery. God is good. Guess what? Even if the diagnosis comes back and it's the unthinkable, God is still good. My circumstances do not determine the goodness of God. My circumstances do not even enter into the equation. How many times I've said it, I've looked back on a day, everything's gone just as I had planned, wind behind me, in the sails, clear, smooth sailing, Yes, God is good. And I've caught it as it was coming out of my mouth. Stephen, even if this had been the worst day in your 45 years, even if everything you had planned had just fallen down, even if the unimaginable and unthinkable had happened, Stephen, do you know what? God is good. Because God's goodness is not determined, touched, altered, influenced by our circumstances. Our circumstances do not enter into the equation. Psalm 118, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For He is good. Why is He good? What makes Him good? For His steadfast love endures forever. That's why He's good. He gives Himself, this boundless God, who does not need us, who gains nothing from us, but for the eternal revelation of his glory, his divine excellencies, he gives himself for us in his son, the Lord Jesus, gives himself to to us through the Holy Spirit. And when we perceive that this is the blessing of all blessings, we bless God. Second truth is this. Those who bless God... They know how to live. I mean, really live. Those who bless God know how to live. Understanding God's blessing. Appreciating God's blessing strengthens when health fails. It encourages when prosperity vanishes. It sustains when friends disappoint. It comforts when affliction arises. How do you live? How do I live when you've just lost your job? Bless the Lord. How do you live when you have just heard the diagnosis? Bless the Lord. How do you live when you've just visited your mother who no longer remembers you? Bless the Lord. How do you live when you have just placed flowers at your spouse's grave? Oh, bless the Lord. Because the cause of blessing is not our circumstances. The cause of blessing is God. He is the blessing. He gives himself to us. And our circumstances cannot touch that. They do not alter that. They do not impact that. And when we grasp this, we learn how to live. 
Third truth is as follows. Those who bless God are a blessing to others. Those who know God's blessing enjoy a peace which the greatest storms cannot touch. They enjoy a contentment which the roughest seas cannot upset. They enjoy a delight which the mightiest winds cannot disturb. And therefore they become a channel of comfort. They become a beacon of hope. They become a source of joy. Because in their living, they point others heavenward. In their living, they point others to the greatest blessing. Fourth truth is this. Those who bless God shake free from spiritual paralysis. Those who bless God shake free. It might take a while, but eventually. They shake free from spiritual paralysis. Why are so many Christians in a perpetual state of gloom, despair, and despondency? Is it possible they have mistaken the nature of God's blessing? Let me repeat that. Why are so many Christians in a perpetual state of gloom, despair, and despondency? Is it possible they have mistaken the nature of God's blessing? God's blessing is not good health. God's blessing is not a happy marriage. God's blessing is not a long life. God's blessing is not material prosperity. God's blessing isn't that all my dreams come true. God's blessing is His mercy in Christ Jesus for those who repent and believe. That is His blessing. And friends, that is enough. (laughs) We remember the depths of our depravity. And what we really deserve from this boundless God, it is more than enough to behold His tender mercies, His goodness, His grace, His loving kindness, His faithfulness, all that is Himself as He reveals it in the gospel, as He declares it in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as He impresses it upon us by the Holy Spirit. When we bless Him, we shake free from spiritual paralysis. And the fifth truth is this. Those who bless God end well. Those who bless God end well. Well, as we have journeyed through the Psalms of Ascent, we have followed the psalmist, different psalmists, David, Solomon, unknown writers, as he travels from the depths of pain to the heights of joy, from the depths of despair to the heights of jubilation, from the depths of doubt to the heights of assurance, from the depths of conviction to the heights of forgiveness, from the depths of bondage to the heights of deliverance. And through it all, one thing, despite all of these changes and experiences and emotions and cries from the soul, despite all of these ups and downs and here's and there's, one thing has remained constant. It is this. The psalmist is continually looking where? Up. His eyes are continually fixed on heaven. His gaze is continually fixed upon God. This is how he lives. Oh, may we learn the lesson and learn it well. If we are to find the true meaning of life, and if we are to find the path of true satisfaction, if we are to give God the glory rightly and exclusively owed to him, we must behold him. Our eyes must be fixed on him. 
When we do, we live well. And despite what happens along the way, the journey always ends well. Let me repeat those five. Those who bless God, they know God's blessing. Those who bless God, they know how to live. Those who bless God are a blessing to others. Those who bless God shake free from spiritual paralysis. And those who bless God end well. This is just an encapsulated form. This is the main intent and message of the Psalms of Ascent. That's it, in a nutshell. The main intent and message of the Psalms of Ascent. And may God grant us the wisdom to understand it. May God grant us the strength to believe it. May God grant us the humility to apply it. And may God give us the grace to live it. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed make that our prayer. As we've heard, heard your word read, declared, explained, applied, I pray now by your Holy Spirit you would help us to live in accordance with it. We are weak and empty vessels. And so we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. We are confused at times. And so we pray that you would grant us illumination and insight and discernment and understanding. We are fearful of so many things and anxious over so many other things. So we pray that you would impart to us that peace which passes all understanding. And we pray, our Father, that you would be our all in all that as we see who you are, as you've revealed yourself in your works, that we might truly say that you are a treasure beyond all compare, and that our souls find their delight and meaning and satisfaction in you alone. We ask it now in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.